Praise the Lord. So tonight I'm talking about steadfastness. I titled tonight Steadfast. Now I want to kind of give a background of why I'm doing this message and why it's important for us in our current climate of church. Okay. Now as the uh, few of us that are here on a Wednesday night can attest, there are Things going on in the church that would ultimately prove that Christians are not being as faithful as they ought to be in a many number of things. Can I get an amen? We are being drawn away by the world, by circumstance, by jobs, by whatever it is that pulls us away from our time with the Lord and with each other. Because the Christian life, as we've discussed over and over, is not one that's meant to be walked alone. Amen? This is meant to be done together in unity with other believers. Amen? The Christian life is not something that we're supposed to do by ourselves. And I'm going to give you a few examples of how Christians have traded biblical principles of how to act and do and behave and and even Christian ideals about how to worship, what it means to pray. And instead of doing what the Bible says, we just have come to make up our own way of doing these things. But I want to show you that those things that we're trading them for are not necessarily going to help us. Can I get an amen? Just one prime example is I talked to someone uh, and they told me, well, I don't know that you can tell me what I'm doing is praying. They said, I just thank God ahead of time for what he's going to do. Well, the problem with that thought process, first of all, is that you're presuming upon the mercies of God something that you don't know God is going to do, okay? It may be something that you desire God to do. It may be something that you have a wholehearted uh, want, and you're earnestly wanting God to do that, but you're just presuming ahead of time. You're saying, thank you, Lord, that you're going to do this and this and this. This is very presumptuous, and you don't see that kind of talk in the New Testament. You don't see Paul presuming upon God that he's going to do this and do that and do another thing. Amen? What you do have is Paul praying. What you do have is the church praying. What you do have is Peter praying. Amen? The, the reality is when we trade an aspect, should prayer be done with thanksgiving? Yes. Should prayer be done with a thankful heart? Yes. But prayer is not presumptuous. Prayer doesn't presume, first of all, to know the will of God. Second of all, to, to pronounce the will of God. Or third, to presume that they know that God is going to do it expressly. The way they think it's going to happen. Amen? The, the reality 
of how the New Testament unfolds is that while Paul and Peter and James and John all go about doing the work that God has called them to, make opportunity to, uh, they have opportunities to speak uh, and, and do miracles in the midst of people, they are not in control of what's going on. They are being led about by God to go preach in different cities. Matter of fact, Paul gets to a city and they stone him nearly to death, okay? So to presume that Paul was just walking around and causing all these things to happen and knew the outcome and knew what was going on is lots of presumption going on here that's not found in Scripture. And when you talk about something like physical healing, now we have people presuming upon God and commanding things and saying they can command things, yet Scripture never tells us to command things. It tells us to pray. And when you ask somebody, have they prayed about something, and they go, no, I'm talking about the authority I possess and my ability to speak to a situation. Well, first of all, that's not in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture do you see Peter, Paul, James, John, anybody. Stephen, if he could speak the situations, would have said, I rebuke you Pharisees. I bind all the devils that are holding you and could, that's making you want to kill me. But he didn't do any of that, did he? He looked steadfast into heaven and saw Jesus seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Stephen preached the gospel and died for it. Surely he didn't see that outcome coming. And surely he didn't presume upon the mercies of God that God would deliver him. Stephen was in the same boat as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said, we know that God is able. Amen. We know that God is able, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to that golden statue. Amen? You see, they have the right idea about what it meant to follow God. They're not presuming to know what God wants. Just like we've traded prayer for this fanciful idea that we can control our Christian destiny, you're out of your ever-loving mind if you think you can control your Christian destiny. If you think you have any say on how great or small you're going to be in the kingdom of God, God's the one who decides who's great and who's small. Remember when, remember when the disciples asked, well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's going to sit at your right hand, right? Jesus said, if you want to be great, don't seek to be great. That's the paraphrased version of what he said. Those who seek to uplift themselves, to, to exalt themselves, will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Paul said, let each man... Be content in the station that God has placed him. Amen? That's a far cry from what we hear. 
ministers on TV and, and the radio trying to tell us, oh, no, you have authority and you need to take authority. And you need to speak to this situation and speak to that situation. Paul never told anybody to do that, but he did tell them to pray. You see how men get off on their own little tangent and instead of doing what scripture tells them to do, they want to do what they think will help them. We do this with church. We do it with prayer. We do it with giving. We do it with speaking to other people about Jesus Christ. We only want to do it our way and refuse to do it the biblical way. Paul addressed this. The writer of Hebrews addresses this. Can I get an amen? Carmen posted a verse today from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, 24, and 25, I believe, where it says to, that we should not forsake the gathering together of ourselves. And I'll show you why that's important. But I want to go back to a verse that we've labored over and over and over and over. Can I get an amen, Gabriel? Amen. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42. And I'm going to show you why this is important in a few minutes, okay? So we're going to walk through this pretty quick because I've got quite a few notes. But I want, to, I want to labor this point for a minute. And I want you if, you, if you're comfortable with writing in your Bible, to underline steadfastly in the first verse. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly. Now, I'm not sure what the ESV says in verse 42. If, if you got one, could you read it to me? You got your ESV, son? Yeah. Acts 2, verse 42. Read it real loud. Oh, you mean it says steadfastly in the ESV too? Man, that's great, ain't it? I love that word being used in the same trans in two different translations. You know what that means? We're talking about the same thing. Amen. It says, huh? Oh, is he in the King James? Okay, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay. Devoting yourselves to the apostles' teaching. Do you know what that means? They were disciples. You know why? Because a disciple followed the instructions of the rabbi, right? Whatever the rabbi did, the disciple did. If the rabbi prayed this way, the disciples prayed this way. That's why when they came to Jesus in the chapter, it was Luke chapter 14, they said, teach us to pray as John has taught his disciples to pray. And Jesus said, you pray, when you pray, you pray this way. Amen? Why? Because they were going to mimic what their rabbi taught them. Can I get an amen? So when we, when, when we understand that being steadfast or devoted to a teaching, that means we're going to do what we saw the rabbi do. 
So Jesus gives us the model for how a Christian life should be lived. Now, if we began to piece together the fact that every Sabbath Christ was at a temple, a synagogue, he was either at a synagogue or at the temple of Jerusalem. We have plenty of scripture that said when it was on a Sabbath, he was here, he was here, he was there. We just finished reading John where he was teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum, right? John 6. The realities that Jesus was a faithful attender to the house of God, yet Christians think they don't have to be. Wow. 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 Jesus prayed all the time, yet Christians don't think we need to. Jesus was in the temple reading scripture, debating scripture, talking about scripture, even at a 14 years old. Why? Because part of following God is doing godly things and following the patterns for which God has laid down for us to live. Can I get an amen on that? But Christians today think that since we're in Christ and in grace, that means there's nothing expected of me. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to pray. I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to witness to no. I don't have to do anything, Pastor. Wrong, 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 wrong. Do you want to know why you're feeble and weak and know nothing and can witness to no one? It's because you won't spend time in prayer. It's because you won't spend time in your word. You won't read God's word and seek to understand it. You don't have a love to know what God expects of you at all. And then you go, man, I really wish I knew the Bible verses like you do, Pastor. You want the solution? Read your Bible. I wish I knew how to be faithful in prayer like you do, Pastor. Well, guess what? Pastor had to learn how to, too. You know what it means? You got to pick a time to pray, and you go pray. Amen? This is what we want in modern Christianity. Mike, can you come here for a second? I'm going to show you what we want, okay? Mike is going to represent the everyday average Christian that won't pray, that won't read their Bible, that won't witness to anybody, that don't lead their family, that don't teach their children. He's just doing, now, Mike does all these things, okay? I'm just, he's standing in for everybody else that don't, okay? So I, I'm not trying to say Mike doesn't do this. But Mike's standing in for all the other people that don't do this, okay? And this is what they do. They go, well, my sanctification ain't there yet, Pastor. One of these days, I'll get there. But this is what they're wanting, okay? And I'm gonna, they want God to come down here and hand them faithfulness. They want God to come down here and, and just put inside of them a desire to pray all the time. 
Well, guess what? It doesn't work that way. They want God to come down here and just put in them a desire just to read the Bible all the time. And, and make it not feel like it's an inconvenience. Trouble is, God doesn't do that. They want God to come down here and somehow, by osmosis, make people come to them so that they can witness to them. There's trouble with that because God doesn't do that either. We're told to go. We're told to read. We're told to study. We're told to pray. We're told to seek. We're told to ask, right? All these things are things we're told to do that God isn't just going to automatically put inside of us and make us do. God will not purposely just, oh, uh, it doesn't matter that you don't want to do this. I'm just going to, you're, you're just all of a sudden going to wake up one day with the desire to read God's word. That doesn't happen. Do you hear me? Even when, you can be seated, thank you. Even when you've been preaching forever and ever, I've been preaching now going on 25 years. I've been ordained 18 years and I'm telling you 100% unequivocally, if I listened to my flesh, I would never pray. If I listened to my flesh, I would never read God's word. If I listened to my flesh, I would never invite someone to church, ask them if they have a church home, ask them if they know about Jesus, ask them if they've heard the gospel. I would never do any of that if I followed what I felt like doing. Christianity is not you do what you feel like doing. I would never come in this door if I felt like coming here every time I showed up. I wouldn't be here. But much like our fanciful idea of love, where love is always goosebumps, and always little flutters in my heart where, oh, I just look at Carmen and she looks at me and we run at each other like one of them Hallmark movies. But that's not real love. Real love is this. Do you want real love? Real love says, look, I know you're getting on my nerves and all I want to do is punch your face off, but I love you and I'm going to purposely make a choice to do the right thing and work and sacrifice myself, lay myself down and say it's not about me and what I want. That's what love is, making purposeful choices because you've made a commitment before Almighty God, you've made a commitment to your spouse, you've made a commitment to raise your children. I mean, these things don't just somehow by osmosis stick together. Amen? Christians have to live purposefully. We have to lead our families purposefully, men. Women, we have to purposefully lead our communities and the women around us and the kids around us. And we purpose, look, my wife would never submit to me of her own free will volition. She submits unto me because it's what she sees in Scripture. And she knows it glorifies God. So she's not submitting to me. She's submitting to Christ. And husbands, when you love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for, nobody wants to go and die, right? 
But the problem is when you get married, it's not about you anymore. It's about her. And now I have to die to my wants, my needs, my desires, and I have to look first to her, and I have to look first to my kids, and I have to look first to the people around me. That's what a Christian's supposed to do, right? But this doesn't happen by osmosis. Why do you think Paul has to keep reminding the Corinthians that they need to prefer one another ahead of their self? Why do you think he has to remind Timothy, remind the Galatians, remind the Ephesians? Why the reminder? Because the natural tendency of our flesh is to not do what God's word says. That's our natural tendency. Christians have to live purposeful lives. Now this only happens by the spirit, right? We can only make these decisions by the Spirit. I understand that. People go, well, you're just dismissing what God does with the Spirit. No, the Spirit does help us. The Spirit does empower us. The Spirit does teach us. The Spirit does, right? Guess what the Spirit doesn't do? The Spirit doesn't decide for you. The Spirit doesn't obey for you. The Spirit doesn't do those things for you. It does absolutely empower you. But we are purposefully living our lives for Christ, empowered by the Spirit of God. This is not some robot-controlled Christianity where you got the Holy Spirit now. You don't have to worry about choosing to do anything. He'll just walk you around and cause you to do all this stuff. It's not how it works. You have to make decisions. You have to decide that I'm going to start praying regularly. I'm going to start going to church regularly. I'm going to start reading my Bible regularly. I'm going to start teaching my children regularly. I'm going to start picking people out regularly that I go and share the gospel with. I'm going to pick people out regularly that don't have a church home that I know are Christians, and I'm going to invite them to the church that I'm attending. These things have to be done purposefully. Acts chapter 2 in the ESV, it says, and they devoted themselves. It doesn't say that God devoted them to it. It doesn't say that God just somehow superimposed his will upon them and made them start doing these things. I want you to notice that even in the King James, it says, and they, who's they? These people that believed. And they continued steadfastly. We're going to look at this word, steadfastly. For a moment, I want to talk about this understanding that uh, I'm just going to read verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Can we read it the way it's meant to be understood? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, 
They, they continued steadfastly in fellowship. They continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. They continued steadfastly in prayer. All four of those things they were steadfastly doing. They devoted themselves, the ESV says. Here it says, they continued steadfastly. This is a purposeful, devoted, disciple-made decision to follow Christ and the example that was set before them. We always talk about this like the fruit of the Spirit. Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we think that God is going to just use the Spirit and somehow one of these days the Spirit's just going to cultivate this in us and we're never going to have to do anything to get this fruit out of ourselves. It's just going to poof one day. It's just going to be like magic and just show up. Now I'll say this, that love, love should be the only one of them that shows up by osmosis. Love. But even that one, the apostles have to remind the church over and over and over and over Love one another. Jesus had to remind them. Love one another. This is uh, Peter tells every uh, Peter tells his listeners, you must love one another. John tells his listeners, you must love one another. And why the constant reminder that we have to love each other if it just happens by osmosis? Because it doesn't. Because even loving people is an act of my will that has to be in part affecting what I'm doing. I have to purposefully love my wife. That doesn't happen by accident. It's purposeful. When I love people in the church, it's purposeful. When I love people outside the church, it's purposeful. You're not going to accidentally somehow by some mysterious great miracle love people that are persecuting you that's going to come from a practice of learning to love people the way that scripture commands us to love people now will the holy spirit enable you to do this certainly he will but he's not going to do it for you you can't show me that anywhere in the New Testament where suddenly they were just struck with this great love that they just stopped fighting and they just stopped. That's not what happened. Paul has to tell the Corinthians, why is there warring and fighting among you? James has to say that to his listeners. Why is there warring and fighting among you? Why is he correcting these people that shouldn't need any correcting if the Holy Ghost was just going to make them do it? The problem is there is a cooperation after you're saved and your will has been turned towards God. Now your will has to be enacted to do these things. It's not just going to be robotically done for you. 
That's why we're commanded, urged, exhorted to pray. Do you know how many times in the New Testament we're exhorted to pray? Pray all with all kinds of prayers and supplications. Pray always. Men ought to always pray and not faint. Pray without ceasing. All these things are being told to them so that they don't lose focus. That they have to be purposeful in how they live their life for Christ. No man who ever, ever gave their life for Christ did so accidentally. It was on purpose. They willingly lived their life for Christ. They purposefully lived their life in the face of opposition for Christ. Yet we have Christians in America because we're so fat and sleek and we don't think we need anything. We think God's just going to do it for us. One of these days, poof, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be, you know, really super spiritual. I'm going to know all about the Bible even though I never read it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be uh, really loving and caring even though I never try to practice it. I'm going to be, uh, I, I'm going to be uh, uh, a, a stalwart witness for Christ, even though I never try to. God does not do it for you. God saves you, enables you, empowers you, but he does not live it out for you. That is nowhere in Scripture. Does he give you new desires? Certainly he does. Should we look at fruit and say, I'm not real sure if they're Christian? Sure we should. But those that were sure are Christians, they have to make decisions to pray. They have to make decisions to read their Bible. It's not, God's not sitting over them going, now what? Hearing about Two years, Kyle, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really just make you really get into your Bible. We don't hear any apostle, any preacher, any person in Scripture talk that way. They all read the Bible because they loved Christ and they was following him and they wanted, they wanted to read his word. They wanted to. To preach the word they if all of this happened by osmosis then all of Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus are meaningless if Paul had to exhort Timothy to not be scared and to proclaim the word with boldness if that was going to happen anyway why did Paul warn him You see, we get weird ideas about Scripture. We get weird ideas about how this works. God will enable every Christian to live a successful, biblical, Christ-glorifying life. But he definitely does not do it for them. If I had a I had a commentary set here from which I could read. I could tell you unequivocally that there is no doubt in regeneration that God is wholly involved with the regeneration of people. 
But to act like God is the only one that's going to do anything in my Christian life for me, like I'm, I, he's just going to make me want to pray one day. He's just going to make me want to read my Bible. That's not in the scriptures. That kind of thought process isn't anywhere in Paul's writings. If it was, he wouldn't be commanding everybody to, to study, to show thyself approved. Why is he commanding me to study if I'm just going to do it anyway? Why is he going to command me to pray if I'm just going to do it anyway? Why is he going to command me to go to church and not forsake the gathering together of ourselves as is the custom of some if we were just going to do it by osmosis? You see, we have to be genuine with the scriptures that we're reading. Although the fruit of the Spirit are these things, none of them are taught that they're just going to happen by happenstance. Paul tells us to exercise the gift of God that's in us, okay? To exercise it. What does that mean? Well, God does give me faith, but I need to put it into practice, right? God does give me a desire to read his word, but I need to purposefully put that into practice. God does give me a, a inkling to share the gospel, but I have to put it into practice. To think that God is going to do all of these things for us is foolhardy at best and totally, absolutely disingenuous to what the scripture teaches at worst. Scriptures do not teach that God's just going to make you do all these things. You have to do them. You have to freely, willingly go and pray. God will not make you. He will let you sleep right through. That's why many of the people that aren't coming to church here on a regular basis are not coming on a regular basis. If God was just going to make people faithful. No, he doesn't make them faithful. They're born again. God's given them the capacity now to choose good. And they have to make that choice to do good. He doesn't make it for them. He doesn't just poof, I'm going to one day make you desire all these things. Now, does God give us those desires? Certainly he does. And I hear those desires every Sunday morning. I wish, I wish I could read the Bible like you, Pastor. The problem is they're waiting for God to do more. He's already given them the desire to read. He's not going to read it for them. They have to purposefully read it. Oh, Pastor, I wish that I could pray every morning like you do. Well, you got a desire, so why aren't you doing it? Are you going to lay that at God's charge? Well, I'm not doing it because God hasn't really made me yet. No. The fault is not God's. It's yours because you're not doing it. That's why Paul commands them to pray. That's why they get rebuked for not praying right in James. You have not because you ask not. When you do ask, you ask amiss. 
He's correcting them. He's correcting their wrong idea about prayer. Do you see that? If they were just going to do it right all on their own, then we don't even need the Bible if that's the way that Christianity works. If Christianity is just the Holy Spirit making us do the things that we're supposed to do, then this book means nothing. It absolutely has no value. But that's not how Christianity works. I read, I study to show myself approved. I learn what God expects of me. And then I have to purposely do those things to glorify Christ. That is what a Christian life looks like. Does not happen by osmosis. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain you know if if we wanted to look at the the fruit of the spirit called faithfulness I want you to know that faithfulness and steadfastness are very similar Faithfulness means that I, am, I have fidelity to, to Christ. Not only that I, do I have faith in Christ, but I'm, I have fidelity to Christ and what he's taught me to do. That I'm going to be faithful to do the things that he's taught me to do. Nowhere in this does it say that they're going to be made to be steadfast or made to be immovable. He's admonishing them. Therefore, my beloved brethren, because we, it says in verse 57, but thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, remember what the therefores are there for? So that you know what was before it. Therefore, my beloved brethren, since we have this victory in Christ, be ye steadfast, unmovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now he's telling them what they need to do since this other thing is true. You see that? He's telling them since we have victory in Christ, you need to be steadfast. You need to be unmovable. You need to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain, be steadfast. If I could just, if, if the Holy Ghost was just going to do it for him anyway, Paul wouldn't have had to tell them this. There's a choice here. There's a, there's a decision about being faithful, about being steadfast, about following Christ because I've got the victory, because I have the Spirit of God, because the greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I can be steadfast. Now I've got to do it. Now I gotta walk it out. Now I gotta live it. Put it to practice. Amen. Paul tells Timothy, you put to practice those things. 
say, hey, I'm going to do it for you. Don't worry about it. God's going to do it for you. He says, you put them into practice. You. Why? Because before, I couldn't. Because I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was dead, lifeless human being that only loved darkness, only loved uh, uh, evil and hated God. I could never choose to do right. But the grace of God saved me, gave me new desires, gave me another will, a new heart, a new desire to fulfill God's will. I can choose that now. I can run after that now. I can say, yes, Lord, here I am. Get this all messed up. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 5. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Now both of these verses that I've read to you, steadfastness and steadfast in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, they both mean Firm, unmovable, a foundation, okay? They mean that you're not going to be moved. You, you have to decide. Look, if you think Josh Eaton, pastor at, 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 first, uh, at a Cross Point Baptist Church in Caney, Kansas, if you think that God wakes him up, just lifts him out of his bed every morning on Monday morning and just causes him to get in his car and causes him to drive down to Tulsa and causes him to do all the things that he does in front of the abortion clinic, you've got another thing coming. Josh has seen the scriptures, understands that taking innocent human life is wrong, and he's made a decision that he's going to stand against this evil. And he purposely wakes up every Monday morning and he drives to Tulsa and he purposely pleads for the life of the unborn. This isn't something that God is making him do. This is a choice that he's made after having had the scriptures revealed to him. Have wise counsel say, why are we not standing against this evil? And he understands that God has given him a desire to do it. But God is not the one going to do it for him. He has to choose to go down there every Monday morning. Rain, shine, heat, snow, whatever. This fanciful idea. That steadfastness just drops on us out of heaven is completely ludicrous. There's only one way you get good at anything in life, spiritual or otherwise. You must put to practice the things that you learned. Period. Faith, hope, 
long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. All these things are things that must be practiced. You're never going to learn to be self-controlled if you're never spiritually minded, if you're never being led by the Spirit, if you're never being led by the understanding that there's a, a different way of life that God's wanting me to live, and I have to strive for that mark. Why am I striving for a mark if God's just going to one day pluck me up from here and just put me at the mark? That's a ridiculous notion. We're striving for the mark because God, in his infinite wisdom and his sovereignty and his providence, has chosen that while we live this Christian life and we're being sanctified, we purposely make choices in our sanctification. We have to. We have to. The fruit that we know we're being sanctified is the fact that we are making better choices. The fact that we are reading God's word and seeing God's word and it's being applied to our spirit and then it shows fruit in our life by different decisions, by better decisions, by more godly decisions. But even when that desire is there, when I read the scripture and see that an elder cannot be a brawler, a lover of violence. That hit me right in the heart. Said, oh no, is that me? And right then, I had to make a choice. Am I going to keep doing the things that I'm doing that go contrary to what the Word of God says? Or am I going to submit myself to the Word of God and do what it says and not be that way? All of us make those choices. Every one of us is Christians. That's called putting to death the old man. That's called beating your body into submission. That's called working out your salvation. This is our part in this process. I'm not saying God can't violate your free will. I'm not even saying that. What I'm saying is, since we are volitional, moral creatures, we do, when we're born again, still make decisions. And we have to. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, this word, steadfastly, means to continue. To steadfastly attend unto. To give unremitted care to a thing. This word means to continue, that you are continuing, that you're doing it, that you're making a decision to do that thing. You're continuing steadfastly. Some examples of this, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. It's the same Greek word being used here. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, or verse 14, excuse me. Acts chapter 1, verse 14, and all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brethren. This is the same word. This is the same word, steadfastly. The same word that they use 
In Acts 2.42 where it says steadfastly. That's the same word that's being used here when it says continued. These all continued. Go with me to Acts chapter 2 verse 46. Acts 2.46 And they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and with singleness of heart. Acts chapter 6 verse well, Oh, here's a good one. This is a good one. And this is the same word steadfastly okay for for all of those people that go well you know steadfastly just means permanent uh you're you're being you're not giving up you're not giving in it doesn't mean that they're doing something steadfastly oh really acts chapter 6 verse 15 and all that said in the council looked steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel this is when they're looking at Stephen. They're steadfastly looking at him. That means they're continuing to look at him, right? They're fixed on him. Their eyes are firmly fixed on him. So when you read Acts 2.42 where it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, what it means is they held fast to what they heard. And they didn't waver from it. They didn't go here and there. and They weren't tossed by every wind of doctrine. They held steadfastly to the apostles' doctrine. And they held fastly to fellowship. They weren't moved. They came and they met together unceasingly. With, without fail, they were determined. Devoted steadfastly. They continued steadfastly with fellowship. They continued steadfastly with breaking bread. They continued steadfastly with prayer. Acts chapter 10. Another example. Same Greek word. Same meaning. Same understanding. Acts chapter 10, verse 7. This is Cornelius. They're talking about Cornelius' soldier that he was sending to go meet one to meet with Peter. And when the angel which had spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants, a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. Now, interestingly enough, the word devout and the word continually are the same Greek word. So to be devout, to be steadfastly in service to somebody is that you're there constantly for their service. We are to be constantly at God's service. We are to be constant in prayer. Isn't that what the scriptures already tell us? We're to be constant in our love one for another. We're to be constant in our meeting together, in our learning, in our working together, in our going out into the community together. This should be constant. We should be devoted to it. We should be continual. 
in the doing of these things. But God will not do the doing for us. Romans 12, verse 12. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Hmm. This is interesting. That, oh, I'm supposed to be in Romans 12, 12, not Acts 12, 12. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Let's go to Romans 12, 12. That'll make a lot more sense. And we can actually start at verse 9, okay? Now, I want you to understand, what's one of the fruits of the Spirit? What's the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. Now, watch this. Let love be without dissimulation. If my love is already going to be without dissimulation, without favoritism, right? If my love is already going to be without favoritism, then why am I being told to not, to, to let my love be without it? Why? Because I'm going to have to purposely make a choice to say, no, I'm going to love this person just the same as this person. That's a choice I'm going to have to make. It's not going to happen by osmosis. Let love be without dissimulation, abhorring that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. So if, if you get saved, you're just going to automatically abhor what's evil, right? That's not what the scripture says. Scripture says that you're going to read the Bible, you're going to read scripture, you're going to know what he says, and, and then, yes, the Holy Spirit will enable you to follow after the Spirit, but he doesn't do it for you. Why else are we told to follow after the Spirit and not the lusts of the flesh? Why that, why that dichotomy if we're only going to do good ever? Because the truth is, there's still a warring in our members. There's still a whole nother, there's still a dead man trying to be in control of things here. That I have to subdue, that I have to keep crucifying, that I have to keep beating into submission. Paul did not say, God beats my body daily. He said, I beat my body daily be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another not slothful in business why is he telling people not to be slothful in business but man they got the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit ought to just make them not be slothful right nope God does enable you to not be slothful, but you have to purposefully have to wake up and say, guess what? Kyle, does God wake you up every morning? Well, I mean, he does. Retrospectively, we understand that every breath we get is from God. But God does not cause Kyle's alarm to go off, nor does God cause Kyle to get out of bed every morning and go to work. Kyle has made a choice to be employed where he's at. Kyle has submitted to the understanding that God's in control of his life, but Kyle still has to wake up every morning and go, oh, I don't want to get up. I better go to work, though. Right? That would be awesome if I could just say, hey, God, 
realities that we have to make choices is so starkly evident that we cannot live our Christian life thinking that God will do it for us. We cannot think that way. We must think the way Scripture tells us to think, that God has enabled us. He's given us every tool we need, right? But we still have to do it. Not slothful in business, fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Now, this is the word, continuing. Steadfast. That's the same word. Continuing, instant in prayer. Distributing to the, necessi uh, the necessities of the saints. Given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and not curse. Rejoice with them that rejoice. Weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one towards another. Now, if we were just going to do that automatically, why is he telling them to do it? Because just like in marriage, me and my wife got two wills at work here. Her will and my will. And what we should want is God's will. And since all we have to know God's will is this, we read God's will and then we attempt to follow God's law and ask for the help of his spirit, the enabling of his spirit. How do I know this is how Paul thought? Because I don't want to get ahead of myself. <clears throat> Let's go to Colossians 4.2. Colossians 4.2. I know I was in Colossians already. We could have just stayed there and read it, but then you wouldn't have got this great Bible workout. Colossians 4.2. Continue in prayer. That continue is the same Greek word. Steadfastly. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Now watch this. With all praying also for us. That God would open unto us a door of utterance. To speak the mystery of Christ. For which I am also in bonds. Now if. Christ was just going to automatically give him this utterance. Why would he ask them to pray for it? Because he's praying that God would strengthen him to make the right decision, to preach the right words, to have the boldness to say what he knows to be true. He still has to make a decision to do that. And he knows without the Spirit's help, he won't make the right decision. You see that? This isn't the only time he asks for prayer like that. You keep reading verse 4. That I make it manifest as I ought to speak. 
He's praying that God would strengthen him, strengthen his will, strengthen his resolve to do and to say the right things. The things that have to be said. To speak the truth and not waver. To be bold in his proclamation of the gospel and not hold back. Because every man's tendency is self-preservation. And Paul was no different. Ephesians chapter 6. Or 5, excuse me. No, it is 6. The one I always get lost on here. Verse 16. Above all, taking up the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now watch this. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mysteries of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The fact is, Paul is telling you unequivocally that there if without the without the without them praying and without God strengthening strengthening him, he has the capability, the capacity to not speak boldly, to not speak plainly, to not do it as he should. And he's asking them to pray that God would strengthen him, that he would do what he should do. Amen. This is not robotic mystical Holy Spirit just moving Paul around and making him do things. This is what we see in scripture that we're being strengthened in our inner man that we might do these things. But we make the choice. We're choosing. We're making a willful volitional choice. That does not negate the will of God does not negate the sovereignty of God. It does not negate the sovereignty of God any more than Jacob's brother making a free will decision to throw, or uh, Joseph's brothers making a free will choice to throw him right down a well. They made a decision, yet God had a decision that was being made at the same time. Amen? What they meant, what they willed for evil, God meant or willed for good. Brother and sister, we must choose to live our life for Christ. Born again people have the capacity within them now because of the spirit of Christ, because they are in Christ, because they've been born again. They now have a will given to them by God to do good, to choose good, to do good works that God has already preordained that we should do. But we must willingly choose to do those things as well. 
God is not going to make you. I've watched people and watched people and I've watched myself. Do you know how I got to reading the Bible every day? I had a desire. Sure I did. I had a desire for years and years to read the Bible every day and didn't do it. Because God gave me the desire, I still had to make the choice to say, you know what, today I'm reading my Bible. Tomorrow when I get up, I'm going to make the decision to, I'm going to go pray. How, how, how ridiculous is it to think that God is going to make me go pray to him? That's ridiculous. That doesn't happen. We pray to God because he saved us. We're, we pray because we love him and we want a relationship with him. Amen? We, we pray because he commands us to. We pray because we know he's the only source for anything good that I'll ever get in my life. So if I want anything, I need to go to him. But God doesn't make us go pray. Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm going to end here. Verse 22, chapter 10. Let us, I'm going to say that again, let us, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And again, he says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised I would like to point out that most people love this verse, don't they? Most people love this verse. Let us hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Do they miss the fact that this is in context of you not forsaking the gathering together of ourselves? Watch this. Verse 23, let us hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and unto good works, not forsaking the assembling together of ourselves as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Verse 23 is tied to verse 25. The context is the profession of our faith. How do, I, how do I hold fast to the profession of my faith without wavering? What is that profession? What does that profession look like? Well, it looks like verse 24 and 25 where we consider one another. And how to provoke one another to love and to good works. And not forsaking the gathering together of ourselves. Do you see 
that verse 23 is inextricably linked to verse 24 and 25. And the context is, if your profession, if you're going to hold fast to the profession of your faith, it's going to look like this. You're going to consider one another and how to provoke one another to love and to good works and to not forsake the gathering together of yourselves. But in all of it, he says, let us, let us. This is a statement that God has empowered us, saved us, delivered us. Now let us not forsake. Let us not forsake gathering together. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast to the profession of our faith. This let us is linked. Look, verse 24 has a let us. Verse 24, and let us consider one another. Why am I preaching this this way? Because we've gotten to a point in Christianity where we think God's just going to automatically do these things. And that is not taught anywhere in the Bible. It's just not. Is regeneration all God's work? Is God sovereign in the act of salvation? Absolutely. Is God sovereign in the life of his people? He absolutely is. Does that mean his people are walking around like robots being forced to do things? No, that's not what scripture teaches. We absolutely have been given a new heart, new desires. And if God was just going to do it for us, then the whole rest of the New Testament after the four Gospels makes no sense. There's a war in your members. There's a war being waged that you have to fight. There's a war in your members that must, where you must willfully choose to subdue the old man, to crucify him, to beat your body into submission. What does that look like, Pastor? That looks like praying when you don't feel like it. That looks like reading your Bible with your family, even when it's not convenient. That looks like going to church and being a part of a local church body, even when you're tired, even when you're not feeling it. I mean, people think that pastors wake up every day, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Tuesday night, and we're just ready to be here. We're just like, whoa, gotta go. If you knew that my flesh was like, I don't want to go. My flesh likes the recliner, doesn't it? My flesh likes to stay home and rest and play video games and and just watch TV. My flesh likes all that stuff. But guess what? Do you know what the Bible calls what, we, what we're doing in Christianity right now? Slothfulness. We have a slothful Christian generation. They're slothful in prayer. They're slothful in, 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 in church attendance. They're slothful in, 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 in praying, reading their Bible, witnessing Whatever you want to talk about, they're not, they're not committed to 
doing these things regularly. Okay? They're definitely not doing it steadfastly. Amen? And it's not going to happen by some magic wave of a wand. It's not going to happen by some magic move of the Spirit. It's going to happen by the Spirit to be sure. But the Spirit of God works in tandem with the Word of God. And God has told us what to do. Right? How do I, how do I build myself up in my whole, most holy faith? Praying in the Holy Ghost. How do I know that I'm approved? I have to study to show myself approved. How do I know, how do I become equipped for every good work? 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be fully equipped, fully furnished for every good work. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you like a dove. And he's, he's going to just impart to you all the wisdom and all the knowledge and all of this to make you go out and do it. No, you have to study. You have to learn. You have to be rebuked and corrected and trained by the Word of God to be fully equipped for every good work. How do we build one another up? In fellowship. In breaking bread. In accountability one to another. This is the biblical model. Not some pseudo-spiritual new age movement of some mystical thing. But people who have been really born again, really changed, really given a new heart, a new will, a new volition, who choose to live their life for Christ and do it by the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God. That's what we see in the Bible. That's what we see. Any other way is mysticism at best. People want all these things, but they don't want to read the Bible, see what it tells them to do, and do it. God's not doing it for them. He's giving you everything you need to know. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I don't know, Lord, whether this is correction or exhortation or both. But God, I pray that those who hear this message, I pray that they listen from a good heart with the ears that can hear, with the eyes that can see, Lord. I pray, Lord, that as they read the word of God, they see that God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, Father, all has expectations of believers and how they're to live their life for your glory.
Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would strengthen us, that you, that you would enable us. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to walk in your ways. Not from a mystical standpoint, God, but that each person would see the truth of Scripture, see the, the great necessity of their soul, of their consecrated, sanctifi sanctified life, God, that the, the necessity lies upon them to deliberately, purposefully live their life committed, consecrated, covenanted to you, God. Because of the love of Christ, because of the sacrifice of Christ, because of the great awe that is filling us, let us serve you. Because of your love, let us love you. Because of your faithfulness, help us, Lord, to be faithful. Because you are steadfast and immovable, unchangeable, help us, God, to be steadfast and unmovable. Lead us and guide us, direct us, and help us, Lord. I pray that each person would be strengthened in their inner man, that they might live their life holy and acceptable unto you, which is their reasonable service. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.